The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the painter and poet Frida Hughes, whose new book is George, a magpie memoir. Frida, welcome. This memoir describes a period of your life in which you adopted a magpie, which we'll talk about, but it's, it's sort of 12 or 13 years ago, I think, isn't it? Well, more than that, even. What is it that's caused you to focus on this and write about this now? Well, Sam, OK, this is my confession. I didn't focus on it and write about it now. I wrote about it back then, and then I wrote about it again and again and again. It started as a diary. I adopted this tiny scrap that I almost bisected in the garden with a shovel, and then it screeched. It had a, a zest for life and a determination to live, even from that first second. Anyway, so I, I bring it in, and I realise that a couple of things. One is that I know nothing about birds at this point. I've rescued animals and birds before, but briefly, a couple of days here, a couple of days there, they either die or they go free. And this time, I am stuck with this little feathered scrap. And this little feathered scrap developed at such a prodigious rate. He feathered up so quickly. He doubled in size every three days or so, it seemed. And in fact, they pretty much do. He pooed enormous quantities because he ate enormous quantities. I was going to say, there's an awful lot of shit in this book. <laughs> a friend of mine said, don't write about the shit. And I said, well, you've got to. If you've got birds, actually or animals of any kind, but birds are indiscriminate. They, so they should anywhere and everywhere at any time. You can't train them like a dog and just take them out for a, a quick poop in the garden. So I did live with huge amounts of magpie shit, which then I discovered as he grew, became smaller and more manageable and um, more predictable. But as a baby, they just devoured such vast... He, he devoured such vast quantities. And so I kept a diary. And in this diary, of course, it, I mean, you know, loving mother, baby steps, first baby steps, the way he kind of developed this little purring noise that he shared with my three little Maltese dogs. And so I became kind of an obsessive mother. I think that's probably an understatement. And so the book originated from my literary obsession with noting his every little bird call and movement. And then as he got to be mischievous and a teenager, it got very interesting. And it got everything from having to add more links to the plug that I never wanted him to steal because I couldn't get another replacement and having to tie things down and hide things and make sure he didn't see me hide things because he could find them. You say at, at the beginning, you know, you nearly cut him in half with a spade. I mean, that's not normally where you find a magpie. How did he kind of come into your life, as it were? And there was a tree on a fence line and I'd been watching this huge magpie nest in the tree with some fascination and wondering if it was the magpie parents eating eggs, duck eggs on the island in the middle of my little pond. And uh, it could have been hedgehogs, it could have been foxes, it could have been almost anything. But I sort of looked at the magpies with suspicion. And so when their nest got broken down in a storm, I thought, oh, no more magpies. That's maybe a good thing. Maybe they'll stop eating the eggs, but the duck had left the nest already. 
anyway, what I didn't know was that the magpie eggs had already hatched. And I found first one little dead chick in the garden, which was very sad, so I gave it a little burial. Then I found a second chick in the garden, and it was badly battered, chewed by cats, and it lived maybe three hours, and that was very sad, so I buried that. And then I, and I was out in the garden because I was digging my garden, and it was 2007, so I'd been doing it for three solid years, and the garden was looking pretty good by then. And George was the third magpie, and was sort of half buried in the leaves, and I was just digging a trench. And so I was going on and dig, 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 and then screech, search for the screech, couldn't hear the screech, so dig, 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 and then another screech, and now I realise the screech is virtually on my foot. And I am almost standing on a magpie and almost about to drive a shovel through its little head. Anyway, I didn't. And George then grew and contributed five of the most hysterical months of my life. Very, very funny. It was like having a two-year-old and three-year-old with wings and he had a very cognitive brain process. I mean, he thought about things and the consequences of things. I remember once he brought me a gift and left it with me. Never, he never brought gifts. But this time he brought me a gift and he laid, it was a red berry and it's his favourite thing. And he laid it beside me and waited for me to appreciate it. But he wouldn't take it again until I handed it back. He would do things like, he watched me hide a pack of doggy schmackos in amongst... 15 identical folded hand towels by the sink. So I slide this slim packet of doggy schmackos in with these thin dog treats. They're sort of like long pieces of chewing gum and dogs love them. And I slid the packet, it was an open packet, into these towels in the middle. And he watched me really intently. And I watched him as he hopped up on the drainer and he paced the towels and he seemed to be counting okay that's me anthropomorphizing but he did appear to be counting and he studied the towels and then very carefully he inserted his whole head in between the two correct towels pulled out the packet dropped it on the floor pulled out a doggy schmacko flew around the kitchen with it and then posted it in the toaster <laughs> well he does seem to spend an awful lot of time hiding stuff i mean like dogs with bones doesn't it? So they have a reputation as thieves, but what what did you observe of the truth behind I the about magpie's that. reputation? And also glitters. Actually, George's favourite things were all red. Pencils, rubbers, rubber bands, rather. I used to get around the post. The mail bands around the letters were always red. So he had a penchant for everything red and flowers, red flowers. But he'd hide food for later, that's for certain. I mean, he would hide food and then later go back and eat it. And it became, if he thought somebody had seen it, he'd wait till you were no longer looking and then he would go back and rehide it to be sure that you weren't going to steal it when he wasn't looking. So he hid things to eat later, like a sort of storage cupboard. But he also seemed to want to place things just because they fitted. It was odd, stealing them to covet them. He once moved an entire bowl of, there must have been about 35 old light bulbs in a bowl. And they were those sort of candle bulbs, so they weren't the big round ones. They were those long, slim, flame-shaped ones. And I had them left from old light fittings, and I was using, <laughs> keeping them to reuse, because I kind of reuse everything. And they disappeared and I thought my then husband must have been using them for something and I didn't think any more of it. But gradually this whole bowl of about 35, 36 bulbs emptied. And the floorboards were up in the utility room because the house was in a state of terrible disrepair. 
And one day I noticed George hovering around the hole in the floorboards and I thought, oh, that's a bit dodgy. I thought, you know, what if he gets stuck down there or what if he's down there and I don't realise he's there and somebody boards the floor up? Anyway, so I poked my nose down and he was very busy rummaging. And so I shone a torch under the floorboards and he'd hidden all of the bulbs, including a little one in a packet, under the floorboards in a nice little stash. I'd love to know why, because he couldn't eat them later. But it was almost like a game. It's It fits. It needs to go from here to there. So still, yeah, my, I'm still cogitating on that one. I haven't quite worked that out, even after five months of minute study of, of George. But the food I can explain, and the red is interesting. Shine on gold things. The only time he ever pecked at gold things, my watch or my rings, when the light caught them. And the light was a moving thing like a firefly. And so he'd go for the firefly. And that was it. Did you get a sense of George's worldview? I mean, you're always still puzzling over some of these behaviours. But you say, I think at one point of the book, you think he thought he was a dog. What was your reading of... He was brought up with my yeah. three Maltese terriers. So as, long, as soon as I got him indoors, I wanted to keep him warm, so I put him in a little dog cage by the Rayburn. And from that moment, the three little dogs were fascinated and they just wouldn't leave him alone. They, he became dog TV. So wherever he was, he was constantly surrounded by these three little white dogs. And one day I came downstairs to feed the dogs and they would line up by the kitchen door and I'd open the door and the three dogs would be sitting there, little tails wagging, little happy faces. And one morning I came down and there were the three dogs and George who had found out that by turning sideways in his cage and squishing his little chest through the bars, he could get his whole self free. And he found out that the bars, they weren't all equal. Some bars had a wider gap than others. And so I came down one morning and George was sitting there with the dogs, little happy face, <laughs> panting for food. And also I really rather didn't want the dogs to kill him. And so I encouraged, you know, familiarity. And he just lived with them. So if he thought he was a dog, I don't know, but he sure behaved like one and kept up with them in all ways. And they related to him. And he would tease them and play with them. And they were like little companions. Can we get a sense also of the setup at the time? Because your rambling Welsh farmhouse in which you're living is in a state of very provisional unpacking and redoing all through this time, isn't it? Not exactly a farmhouse. It's a kind of, it's a hall. So it looks quite posh from the front. <laughs> it's, it's got a very nice front. Victorian, a Georgian front bit and then the Victorians extended on the front and then the Victorians built big on the back and they have high ceilings and all the rest of it. At the moment the ceiling rose you see up there is in the Georgian kitchen and I get the best reception in the kitchen so that's where we are. But no, me and my ex-husband moved in here from London. I basically always been a country girl at heart and I'd moved back from Australia from several years in Western Australia when my father got sick in 1997 and then sadly died in 1998, but I never went back to Australia to live permanently. I found that because I paint and I write and I sell everything I paint and write in England, mostly, sometimes in America and sometimes in Australia, but I found living where my roots are, were, whichever. I th somebody once said to me, you always come back to your roots. 
And I don't know. So that's it. Can you say what was it that sent you to Australia in the first place? I did, I mean, oh, my I knew goodness, the landscape. Oh, my God. I went to visit a friend in Perth and I just remember looking out of the window and seeing the outback and the bush. And I was, I'm a figurative painter, but I now paint abstracts. And it's partly because of that first vision out of the window. The salt bowls and the ground leaching the colours of the earth into huge sways and swirls and, and patterns and circles. And I just found that magical. And then we land, and because I love plants and trees and so on, I was sort of transfixed by the rather prehistoric vegetation. And then a friend of mine took me sort of north into the bush, sort of up the west coast, and I do quite like nothingness. I feel a lot safer. I feel a lot safer in big open deserts. I'm quite happy in a rocky desert. As long as I've got stones that I can dig amongst and find, I'd be very bored in a sandy desert. But it was the landscape. It was terrific. And the shadows were so black and intense. Every time I saw a sheep, it was like I'd seen a sheep for the first time. My God, there's a sheep with a black shadow. I've got to paint it right now. Um, whereas in England, I'd see a sheep and I think, that's a really pretty sheep. And it's a very kind of grey sheep in a kind of grey shadow. And it's very muted and beautiful nonetheless, but muted. So in Australia, it was a bit of a shock to the senses. And I absolutely fell in love with the countryside and the flora and fauna. And then I wanted to live there and paint it. But you came back and... I came I mean, back originally because of Dad, but also I realised, I sort of projected myself, if I was living in Australia in my dotage, I thought, how would I feel the country I was born and brought up with growing old without me? I know that sounds a bit odd. Brings me back to roots. And because my dad moved around so much when I was a kid, I mean, under the age of 10, we were always shifting. And I lost count of the number of schools, some were like, you know, four weeks or six weeks, and it was a bit ridiculous. But I really wanted just to stay still and just have animals, grow plants, have stuff. Like, I can see your bookshelf behind you. Oh, stuff, yes. And so that's <laughs> roots to me. You are rooted, Sam, by your stuff there behind you. And it is. We make. Um, my wife would rather I wasn't. <laughs> really? She's, is she trying to clear you out? Well, she wants, she wants rid of these books. Anyway. <laughs> I bet you have another room of them as well. But, uh, yeah, uh, not a lot. <laughs> so it was, it was a love of the landscape. And since leaving, I have gone back very often to visit it and to visit friends there. And I still love it. And I do hanker after it sometimes. But now I have my roots. I have lots of roots. Yes. I mean, that thing you describe seems to me really interesting to, to the emotional background of the book and what's going on around your relationship with George. Because you do talk in the outset about this very peripatetic childhood in which your father was both the cause of a great deal of uprooting and obviously the sort of rock or, you know, in himself, the stability. And this, you're rooted, you've got this house... But it's in a permanent state of turmoil from the sound of it. Yes, that was partly because my then partner was sort of working on it a bit at a time. It was so big. It's big. And it was going to be the last place that I ever wanted to paint and write in because I could grow into it. Back then, I thought we could grow into it. But, you know, and in the end, he needed to go back to Australia. And I completely understand that. But because it was just the two of us and whoever I could afford, because I was the major main breadwinner, I took on the garden 
myself because that was one thing I could do myself. I could mix cement. I could buy, I bought a cement mixer. I put it together. <laughs> I only had one screw left. Apparently that was a spare. And then I started mixing cement to lay pavers, to build pretty garden walls for raised flower beds and so on. I went, I was going to say a, a bit bonkers. I would say I found something that I could control and contribute to to bring the whole project forward, whereas I couldn't control the availability of a plumber. I found out the most recommended plumber and electrician and had to wait a year and a half <laughs> to get them. And one of them has since retired and the electrician is still working in the house. He's been working in the house for 19 years and he's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, sometimes if people need to find him, they phone my phone and say, is he there? So it's a big project, Sam. That was part of the problem. And into the big project, of course, there's other life. And I realised by doing the garden that if I was completely focused and dedicated on one thing, I could make magic happen. But how many of us have the luxury of being able to be completely focused and go at one thing until it's finished? Because normally, we, you know, we've got to cook a meal, well, which I did have to cook a meal, or we have to do this, we have to take the car for an MOT, or, you know, I don't have children, I've got, <laughs> I had magpies and now I've got owls because of the magpie. You know, people have things that they have to do in a day to survive, and then into that you have to fit your obsession or your project. So life, life and work... It, you know, extended the pain, really. <laughs> there is something, by your own confession, obsessional about your relationship with George. He becomes this sort of repository for some kind of, I don't know, but you talk about saying, you know, you couldn't bear to go out to dinner because you were frightened that George would get out. Or Your life evolved around him for some months, didn't it? It did, and that was... It didn't have to. I could have been a lot more logical, practical and sensible with him. It was actually a decision not to be, because I had that luxury. I had the luxury of working at home, and I was the Times poetry columnist at the time, so I could write at night, I could do my painting at night, I could write my, I could do everything else at night. I used to answer emails at night. In the day, I could do my gardening obsession, and into that gardening obsession, George fitted beautifully. George also became the sort of emotional repository. You know, he was... The, he was but partly, if he hadn't related, if he'd been a duck or a pheasant, I probably would have had to resist popping him in the oven with a, on a nice heat and have a sauce ready. But he wasn't. He was a very interactive... <laughs> it's a good fortune not to be edible. He was, <laughs> he was definitely not edible. It had been a bit stringy. But he was... Because he engaged... It was very hard not to respond. And because I was the centre of his world, and I have to say the dogs did play a big part in his world too. I mean, they did take some of the load off, really. Um, I also, in my imagination, and it is my fault, I mean, it is self-inflicted, I used to imagine his little sense of desperation if I wasn't there for quite a long period. Now, he probably wasn't desperate at all. He'd be sitting there having an occasional poop thinking, well, I'm not hungry yet, but when I am, I'll scream and food will magically appear. So it was very much self-inflicted, this sort of passion. But he did encourage it and he did relate and when he started to fly and I was his landing post and when after two months 
I let him out of the window and I have to be honest, Sam, I was fraught with all the imaginings of him getting shot by magpie haters or farmers. Anyway, I let him out after two months and he just kept coming back. And during the days he'd play with me in the garden and I was the centre of his world and it was very hard not to respond. And while I could respond, it was a joy because I knew at some point it would end. And I didn't know how. I didn't know if it would be a happy ending or a tragic ending. Thankfully, thankfully, it was a happy ending, but it could have been lots of other things. Um, also, well, thank- you mentioned magpie haters. You farmers. Know, not yeah, magpies farmers. are not popular, but as you describe it, the cognitive power of them is extraordinary. You know, they're, you know, they've got a theory of mind. They play. They they do. And like crows and rooks and ravens. Oh, boy, ravens are very smart. They are insanely... Oh, I shouldn't use the word insanely. I was going to say they're so clever. I mean, there's no other word for it. They are incredibly clever. I was, I've read bits and pieces of other people's books about working with corvids and magpies. And there is an old fable where a crow is, finds a pitcher of water and drops pebbles in it to raise the level of water so he could drink. Somebody tried an experiment, and in order to get the crow to raise the level of water, because they couldn't make the crow thirsty, they put these little dried bugs that, what are they called? Birds love them, and I can't remember what they are, but they're like little dried worm things. And they dropped them in on top of the water, and the crow couldn't get them. And then not only did he fill the jar with pebbles to bring the water level up, he chose bigger and bigger pebbles to do it quicker. So they are very clever, but farmers and so on, in 19... When was I? I was 16, so it was 1976. Shows my age. You can look my age up on the internet. I can't hide it anymore. (laughs) It's ridiculous. I wouldn't dream of it. But in 1976, there was a drought, and then corvids, crows and so on, were attacking sheep and lambs and so on, and it was to get moisture, and it was really rather awful and barbaric. And that sort of, I think, stuck in a lot of people's memory. But generally speaking, they are the cleaners up of dead stuff. So, you know, you will get crows dragging carcasses off a road where cars have run over a little, you know, a pheasant or something. So generally speaking, they clear muck up. And in fact... George is frequently dropping the rotting back end of a dead mouse into... Into a you know, your spine. hood or the fold of your trousers or the... Your bookshelf or whatever. Well, I remember finding a rotting dead mouse. Um, but I never realised how often they must crawl off and die anyway. A mouse obviously died under a rock in the garden. I lift this rock and it's putrefying in a little puddle of water. And I looked at this thinking, oh, if I pick it up, it's probably going to just disintegrate. And George swept in from one side, scooped it up in his beak and then just disappeared off into the heavens with it and problem solved. So that was when I realised that he was probably going to be able to fend for himself just As you say, there's a lot of magpie haters, but George specifically was a menace, wasn't he, to your neighbours? I mean, I think one spots in the book that a lot of the people around you thought you were crazy. Well, I'm not sure about... Well, mm, yes. (laughs) I just don't want to... I'd like to say, maybe interesting. Let's change the terminology and say... Interesting. What an interesting woman. She has a magpie perched on her head. How many people go around with a magpie perched on their head? I have photos of a magpie perched on my head. He just thought I was a tree, really. Yes, the problem with George, and this is something I hadn't anticipated, he got very friendly. I mean, because he was so friendly with me and used to me. And I did find that jealousy is a completely wasted emotion. I think we should all get rid of it. We shouldn't be jealous. We should be happy for other people's success and the things they're doing and just look to our own lives. 
because it is a wasted emotion. But I did find myself being jealous when I discovered that George was visiting various people in the village. And so they were thinking that they had this relationship with this magical magpie too. And it was my magpie. And then I have to think, well, no, it wasn't my magpie. I was just borrowing the magpie. The magpie was its own magpie, and I was just on part of its journey. But I did feel pangs of envy when my neighbours would say, you know, I was out walking the dog and George came and hopped along beside the dog because that's what he did with me. What was a worry was when he developed this habit of pacing around somebody on the ground, looking up at their head, and wherever he was looking, he was going to go. And then he'd shoot up, land on their head and bounce off it which was fine. It didn't hurt. It was a bit odd. And you felt this soft, squishy pressure of, you know, feet, <laughs> little magpie feet on your head. And then he would be off and he'd have done it. But I had an elderly neighbour at the time who didn't like birds at all anyway. And so this magpie bouncing became a source of terror for her. So she took to wearing a hat to get to the car. It took me a while to find this out because people were very <laughs> polite and they didn't want to tell me that my magpie was a pain in the backside. So she took to wearing a hat and I realised I was going to have to build an aviary for George if he was going to stay. And this pained me. But I started to build the biggest aviary I could. I mean, it is now, what is it? It's about 25 feet by 20 feet and it's... 12, nearly 12 feet high. I mean, it's huge. And into this, I was going to build raised flower beds, have a, a pond, a little fountain. I mean, I was going to make paradise for my pet. And I didn't want to put him in it because I wanted him to fly free. But if he wouldn't leave and my neighbour and maybe one or two others were scared of him doing the head bounce thing, doesn't sound like a lot. If you don't like birds, it's shocking. You know, it's terrifying to have a bird fly at you, bounce off your head if you are not ready or willing <laughs> or able to put Alfred up Hitchcock, with it. Yeah. So George was going to go in the aviary. But the aviary started going up and he used to dance around it. And honestly, Sam, I swear the bird knew because after five months, shortly before the aviary was finished, in fact, pretty much, you know, it was almost the same time he was off. He finally, finally flew. Five months later. I was worried about mentioning that for reasons of spoilers, but, yeah, obviously he does leave. Um, well, I didn't know how, because I've but, often wondered about that as a spoiler, because it's hard to say he had a happy ending, but not say how. He had a happy ending in the cage. Yay! No, that doesn't sound quite right, does it? Yes. But the thing is, it's what happens on the journey and when he first left. And when I thought he'd first left, the shock it had on me. I was quite actually... I'm not I was rather astonished at my own reaction to his first absence because his last absence wasn't his first absence for which I'm deeply grateful. And it's extraordinary how suddenly this big empty space because I'd made him such a big part of my life of course suddenly there was this big gap huge gap and no George and I was bereft really shockingly unhappy about his first departure. <laughs> now, for the most part, the arc of the story about George is a happy one, though it has that grief at the end. But riven around it as well, you know, is a story, I guess, of the breakdown of a marriage. And you talk about your then-husband as the ex all the way through, which I'm interested in why you make that formal 
decision, a kind of prolepsis. We have now been divorced for much longer than we were married. And we were married for 12, nearly 13 years and broke up after 12. But it's hard to see because in my mind, you know, I've had a whole other life since then, a very different, you know, very different life, obviously, without him. And so for me, it was almost too personal to bring a name into it. And I did, you know, it was first written with his name in. And you did ask, you know, how come write the book now? But it's interesting. I went through several drafts of this because it went from diary to story to, oh, God, bit of misery memoir. And then you have to think, well, I had to think, what is it? Why did I write this in the first place? And what I really wrote it as was a love story between me and a bird, which might sound a bit peculiar, but it was, I mean, everything. It was just, I so adored having this bird for the time I had him. But in the background, yes, my marriage was disintegrating because it's, I don't, I've often wondered, you have two intelligent people, they fall in love, you're going to be partners forever. And I, I used to think of myself a little bit as a triumph of hope over experience because it wasn't my first marriage. But then I wonder always, how can two people not communicate to the point where they can resolve their issues? And in fact, near the end of the book, because at the end of the book, I do put in a couple of bits where we have a conversation it was very difficult to get a conversation, I have to be honest, surprisingly so, that was rational. But there was one conversation where I discovered our expectations of where we were going were so hugely different. And what had been happening was I had been imagining putting down roots here, having my art shows from here, you know, trips to London for art shows if I needed to, writing from here, doing my Times Poetry column from here, being here, rooted he hadn't. He had imagined moving back to Australia when he was older. But the thing is, he was older than me. He was 14 years older. And I was very troubled <laughs> to find out that when we moved into this house, which I was then thinking was going to be my last house and I was going to pretty much die in it one day when I'm 120, hopefully with all my faculties, I was very dismayed to discover as time progressed that this was the end of his time here. He wasn't planning to stay at all. And Australia was calling for, because Australia for him was home. You can't deny somebody, I mean, we have to live for ourselves. We cannot live for others. So he could no more live for me than I could live for him. We hope to live in partnership. And sometimes we digress and we don't even realise it. And so the bird, George, came into my life at a point where I was willfully ignoring the bleeding obvious. <laughs> so, and, and George was the most welcome distraction you can possibly imagine because into life and a life of priorities, you know, okay, prioritize food, got to buy food, got to pay the gas bill, got to pay the electric bill. Actually, we don't have gas here. We're, too, <laughs> we're in Wales. We don't have gas. We have bottle gas, calor gas, but we have oil. So, you know, priorities. Do I have a roof over my head? Do I have food on the table? Do I have enough money coming in to pay for the above? And then you go up from there. But the moment into that you toss 
something that is going to die if you don't pay it attention. I mean, it could have been a child, but no, no, it wasn't. It was a magpie. Then everything else takes a back seat and everything else slips down the priority list. And that's sort of liberating in a way because then you don't have to make a decision. The decision has been made for you because the most needy creature or person gets the attention and solves a lot of other decision problems while they quietly fester underneath, <laughs> just waiting <laughs> to come up and nip you when you're not looking. Now, you make clear in the book that you know, through your whole life, you kind of groan and roll your eyes when you're introduced as Frida Hughes, daughter of Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. And I crave your indulgence because your father, at least, does enter into this book a little bit. And he has form writing about Corvids. He has. <laughs> Big form. Very famous form with Crow. Exactly. Does, I mean, it's hard to read without this prism that, for example, early on you describe the house in a storm as being like a ship at sea. And I'm suddenly that's, his poem Wind begins exactly that same way. Is he someone, you know, you've chosen to become a poet yourself. Is he someone you feel effectively over your shoulder as you're writing this book? Okay, no is the easy answer to that. And the interesting thing about chosen, I like your word chosen to become a poet. Because of my father and my mother, I have problems <clears throat> becoming a poet at all. I could say poetry sort of, I, I, would, I can't even say it found me. It just was there somehow. It might have been because of who they are. It might be genetic. It might be because I was brought up in a household where people were literary, uh, people were interested, visitors were poets or writers. <clears throat> there was an interest in anything that you could turn into a story or a poem. But also, curiously, among my many childhood schools, there was one little local school where we were made to learn poetry by heart. And we would have to come back and be able to recite poetry. So it's interesting. It was sort of everywhere. And as I grew up, the word poet became synonymous with Plath and Hughes for me. So the moment somebody said poet, I immediately thought, mummy, daddy, which was rather strange, really. But um, nonetheless... Is that because it was a, they were so much part of the curriculum? Well, that's it. When I got to do O-levels, they were on the curriculum and I had to get... <laughs> I remember my father being so delighted. He said, this is fantastic. He said, Frida, let me help you. And I said, no, no, Daddy, you can't because that's cheating. And he said, no, no, but... I, I know your mother's poetry, back to front, upside down, inside out. He said, and then there's my poetry. And I said, yeah, can you imagine me going into school and getting a bad mark and then going to the teacher and saying, look, I got this from the horse's mouth. You can't give me a bad mark. All because they think you meant something else. I said, so, you know, I've got a really unfair advantage. And so I went to the school and I said, you have to understand my unfair advantage. And also the fact you may penalise me for having great answers because I got it from the poet's mouth, but you disagree with my answers. So I can't win. And so they actually gave me, I forget who they gave me. They gave me other poets to study. I became a special case. <laughs> they couldn't have me doing Plath and Hughes on the curriculum. Um, and so I escaped reading my father's poetry. In the meantime, my nerve endings as a teenager were everywhere. I mean, I have to be honest, I was 
I, it's like I could feel everything and sense everything and thoughts used to assail me so rapidly that I had to put them somewhere. So I put them in poems. And I wrote these poems and I, sh I remember showing them to an English teacher who wasn't actually one of mine. He was, he, I didn't have him, I wasn't in one of his classes. Wish I had been, John Batston, one, he was a brilliant man. But he actually wrote to my father behind my back and I didn't know, saying, do you know your daughter? I've <laughs> he told me about the letter many, many years later before he died. Do you know your daughter's writing poetry? And this is some of it. So that's how Dad found, found out that I was writing poetry behind his back. And I wouldn't read... I'm, I'm kind of ashamed, but I wouldn't read his or my mother's poetry until I had got my first book published, agreed, you know, publication was agreed. And then I gave myself a sort of crash course in the basics because I feared contamination. And I thought, there is you. There, there you are, Sam, saying, you know, there's the, the house being shaken in the wind and thinking of a Hughes poem... And I can say to myself, if you were referring, say, to a poem I'd written back then, I'd be able to think, Sam, you can compare me to my dad. I said, but I know, I know that came out of my own head without any contamination. And I'd just be able to know privately, for me, for my sake, that I am myself. Because other people are always going to layer things upon us. No matter who you are, people will put their less. And there's nothing we can do about that. The only thing we can do is have what we hope is a good sense of ourselves. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I mean, do you think you come at nature from a different angle to your dad? Because he's obviously part of what, you know, your description of your childhood and him taking you into nature and instilling that love of nature. But when I think of his birds, thrushes, say, they're less friendly than George, let's put it that way. And crow, indeed. Well, yes. Well, while Dad was writing those poems, I was bringing crows home to die, mostly, because you can't catch a crow unless it's <laughs> going to die. Let's face it, there's something wrong with it. So as a little girl, I would come home with crows in boxes and bags and say, Daddy, Daddy, how do you feed it? And he wouldn't know. I mean, he actually didn't know how to feed it. You know, feed it grubs and flies and things. And, and then the poor little things would die because they were dying already. So... His version of nature and my version of nature were come to very separately. He was, I don't know, a bit wilder. I'm, I'm much more, I don't know, I think of myself when I was a child scuttling amongst the undergrowth, digging out slow worms and grass snakes to take home to show him and things I wanted to rescue. I've always been a rescuer. I don't know why. I just, look, it needs help. I could do this, maybe, perhaps, <laughs> save it. Daddy wasn't into saving things quite quite the same way. He did save a badger once from a pet shop, though. The badger was in a horrible cage in a pet shop and it couldn't turn around and he took pity on it and it nearly bit his finger off. Well, I mean, it, I should say it bit his finger almost off. That makes sense. So he discovered that it was a bit feral and I used to feed it as a 13-year-old and adored the badger and eventually it dug its way to freedom. But our versions of animals are very different. Yes, yeah, so we've been keeping a diary then. Perhaps we could have had a follow-up. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, Frida Hughes, thank you very much. George, a magpie memoir is out, I think, any day now. Sam, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>